Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno back on the show. It's always a fantastic time talking to Menno. I ask him the questions you guys sent in over on my Instagram. As a side note, if you ever are looking to ask questions to the guests, that's generally where I source them. So be sure to follow me over on Instagram at Revive Stronger. That'd be fantastic. I also post a bunch over there and hopefully some useful stuff. But in this episode, we talk about a bunch of different things from over and underrated movements for hypertrophy and injury management and much, much more. Loads of great takeaways within this episode. As always, guys, so you know, we do have spots available with our team for online coaching. If you're interested in growing some muscle, dropping some fat, what have you, photo shoot, contest prep, we're here to help you. So if you're interested in that, you can check out our online coaching service in the description below and you can always book in a consultation with one of us. But for now, guys, let's get into the chat with Menno. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno back on the show. It was actually only four months ago since you were last on, or at least we last released an episode, so it's probably about four months since we chatted. That was episode 296. It's actually your 16th time on, Menno. It's Rip, crazy. 16. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever checked, but because we've done so many, because you're great for the roundtables, so we bring you on often to like have those discussions mm-hmm. as well, because I think you bring a, a great different perspective. So yeah, 16 times times majority still solo but there's been plenty of roundtables mm-hmm. that have gone down so i just want to say a massive thank you for kind of being on here i know people love kind of hearing your perspective and hearing your knowledge so i love chatting to you too so yeah thank you so much <laughs> my pleasure i think your podcast is great and you ask good questions you know you keep it you're you're in the in the know so you ask the right questions and the right kind of detail so i always I appreciate to that. talk uh, so, and as we were speaking off air, unfortunately, I was just asking Menno kind of, how is he going? Uh, this sort of thing. And I said, well, Menno brought up uh, a back injury. So a few people, uh, when I did put out for questions, were asking kind of like, how's the back? Uh, has that changed any perspectives on things? So I thought I'd just let you kind of let people know, because I hadn't actually seen uh, what's happened to your back. I know you've had like a, a bad injury in the past, uh, but that was kind of different to what this is. So yeah, how how are things there? This is the same injury. It's the same one. Okay. Yeah. So it's bad. I thought it was soft tissue and probably it was because something popped. And that was September last year. And originally it rehabbed okay. I was basically pain-free. Couldn't squat or deadlift yet, but basically pain-free. Couldn't do everything else. Um, started doing hip thrusts. No issues for a couple of weeks. And then suddenly during hip thrust, massive uh, pain search for my abs, which is, it's it's a very weird injury. I've talked to quite a few people about it now and nobody can really lay their finger on the cause or diagnose it. So I had an MRI scan done because this, this time it wasn't healing. It seemed to be, unfortunately, nothing hurts except squatting, deadlifting, walking, or standing, <laughs> which is, you know, a lot of we things. We spoke but- about this last time, actually. It's the yeah, same well, injury as we last spoke about. Injury. Oh my gosh, so I'm so it, sorry. At that time, it wasn't really healing. And I had an MRI scan done since then. And it's not just soft tissue, which is what I feared because it, soft tissue doesn't take that long to heal. And normally my soft tissues heal quite well. It's actually a herniated disc, maybe two, with bone splinters. So it's, uh, it's going to be a long one. And the prognosis... I mean, if you look at the MRI, the prognosis looks good. It doesn't look that bad. I mean, all the, the doctors I've talked to say, like, you know, I've, I've seen much worse and they still didn't need surgery. Although in my case, it's more like, like going by symptoms and recovery time, it's bad. But there is no surgical target. So I don't even really have the option of a surgery. But it's, yeah, it's going to be a, a tough one. Probably I'm thinking... I'll be happy if in one year I can be fully pain-free and hopefully squat and deadlift again, I think. So I'm kind of thinking long run, squats and deadlifts, probably not so great, especially because I have one herniated disc, one slightly bulging. So L4, L5 is definitely screwed. And then L1, L2 seems anteriorly herniated. It's like 50-50, depending on who you ask. They're like, oh, wow. yeah, that's bad. And the other half is like, nah, that, I think that's MRI artifact. Looks remarkable. So that's, that's a bit weird. But um, 
in general, the, the, there's a big discrepancy, as usual, between the MRI and the symptoms. And the symptoms also don't match that of a normal hernia. It's, it's just a super weird, complicated injury. There's no true diagnosis. It doesn't heal well. And I have no pain signals to go by. So I have had many, many injuries. And I'd say I'm actually quite good at rehabbing injuries because I have a lot of, almost all my clients are quite serious. So injury rates are relatively high compared to someone who has like clients who do, you know, twice, three times a week training. Many of my clients are five, quite some do daily training, powerlifters, bodybuilders, contest prep, you know, injury rates are quite higher. And I'm very successful, I would say, at rehabbing all those kind of minor, you know, golfer's, golfer's elbow, tennis elbow, patellar tendinopathy, uh, sprains, strains, no issues. The main thing all of these things have in common is there are pain signals or at least some deficits in function or range of motion. For me, there's nothing. So I never know what's making it better or worse. Oh, the only, wow. only indicator I have is somewhat is the next morning because every morning I'm in pain pretty much or it's, it's much worse. Right now, I don't feel, it feels stiff, but not really any pain. Most of the days, the first two hours I'm in pain regardless. And it seems to be somewhat worse after certain things, but it's a very rough signal to noise. So it's extremely difficult to know what I can do. And it seems to be some things that are, you would think are almost trivial. For example, I tried band external rotations because I'm currently, I can basically do nothing for my glutes. And I would think, okay, surely band external rotations are fine. There's no pelvic movement. There's no spinal loading. Nope, it did not seem to be the case. So it's uh, yeah, super complicated. On the bright side, I'm confident it will uh, make me a lot better as a, as a coach and also for injury rehab. And sure. I'm also a semi-expert on MRI reading and herniated disc yeah. at this point. So that's good. And I mean, long-term perspective, I think is still okay. I think I'm going to take up boxing. Powerlifting was probably not okay. in the cards for me anyway. So mainly due to my bench press, not the squat and deadlift. But yeah, I think I'm long-term thinking boxing, lower volume, just maintain. And uh, at the moment, I'm, my volume is cut down into a third, roughly. It's It might not okay. even be minimum effective. I'm just trying to sort of hold on to muscle mass, which, because I found that sort of the total amount of daily physical activity I have seems to be a factor. So I can do like a two-hour workout feel absolutely nothing, don't, don't do any exercise that even has theoretical spinal loading or pelvic sure. movement or whatever, and the next morning it's worse. <laughs> so it's definitely a, a bad one. I'm so sorry to hear that. There's nothing worse than injuries for like like us <laughs> people that mm -hmm. just love training like it's like for you it's something you i think you actually were doing every day weren't you so it's like an yeah. anchor for you are you still going like most days just real minimal yeah. amount uh, doing at least like the mcgill big free kind of rehab sure. movements those kind of things at the minimum just to get out and do something because the standard advice is you should stay mobile and i've tried taking yeah. complete okay. rest and that, that doesn't work either so there is just an extremely fine line for me between if I do nothing, it doesn't heal. And if I'm too active, it also doesn't heal. So it's it's just difficult to know what to do. But yeah, if I do absolutely nothing, that also doesn't help, uh, I think, with mental health and everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess at this point, you're kind of near that genetic ceiling as such and so the difference between you like the amount of work you had to do to try and see any gains versus maintain your gains huge difference so at least right now mm -hmm. it's like you're still in very good shape and i'm from the sounds of things you can train every muscle group to yeah, some except, extent except so glutes and erector spinae okay so maybe you're gonna yeah lose a little bit there but again i guess you know you'll you'll know this better than anyone the research on like muscle retention i mean what's yeah. it called muscle memory so when you come back in and you are able to start loading that you're gonna get all these like should hopefully rapidly will come back so it's just i guess the day-to-day -day not being able to kind of go for walks and yeah like yeah. like i think like the things that are de-stressing for me are normally active <laughs> and so i can't imagine what it must be like to have that taken away is there anything like you found to fill that void a little bit for you is it work or nope <laughs> no no there's uh i also like being active and when i think i like to walk 
So that also sucks. I can't do that. But I've at least learned to just sit and think. And it's not really worse. It's um, just something to get used to. I'm just much more sedentary than I'd like. But that, that's the, the least of the problems. I mean, in the very, very long run, I'm, I'm quite confident I can, I can rehab this. Not 100% confident, unfortunately, but quite confident. Because, you know, I've talked to many, many experts now and their methods also don't seem to uh, work. So, but quite confident I can return to even squatting and deadlifting long-term. But then it's definitely, if you're asking about long-term perspective, it's definitely shifted the long-term perspective. Not in terms of giving up or, you know, being demotivated, but simply of the risk-reward. Because I know right. as, exactly as you say, I was pushing everything to the limits to gain, you know, to be happy to gain a pound per year. And I can still do that for most of muscle groups. Maybe lower body is, is going to be a little trickier. But on the other hand, I'm also an interesting case study to show how far you can get without squats and deadlifts. And I think you can actually do perfectly well. At the moment, like I said, glutes and erectors being high the issue, but long-term, I think even that can be managed. Powerlifting is, well, it wouldn't even be completely out of the question. But the risk reward is just too poor, I think. Sure. Because even if you can fully rehab something, and the research on herniated disc is quite positive, if you stay active, even full hernias over the course of, say, five years, they fully resolve. So if you, if you rehab it well, and not just beyond the initial pain period, but in the coming years, it's a, it's a very prolonged process. If you do that well, there's a good prognosis that you're, at the minimum, your functionality will be 100% restored and you will not be in pain anymore. And even structurally speaking, on the MRI, it might even fully be gone. However, even then, most research still indicates that prior injury in general, this is true for almost any kind of injury, the strongest predictor of future injury is prior injury. So any tissue that has been damaged, there's simply, there's some scar tissue, some tissues just don't 100% heal, your body compensates, finds a way around it, but there is still some damage that's, will always pose some risk for bad cases such as these. And I guess like there's not even like a nice takeaway for this or it's, it's even, I imagine, challenging for you because the initial injury that has led to this then coming in again was random. Like it wasn't something you really like. You couldn't, what could you have done to represent yeah. that? Like it was just something that a freak accident. So like there is an advice to like your like gym. I, I guess actually if I was to ask you in terms of like when you're taking your clients to this and the perspective you took, to limit injuries as much as possible, what do you do? And then I guess the advice of if you are injured, kind of the perspective to take, how do you help your clients through that in terms of most injuries aren't as severe as what this one mm-hmm. is being? No, I mean, in general, it hasn't changed anything. The general take-home message is sometimes life sucks and you just got to take it and deal with it. And it's almost a rite of passage. You know, like if you look at all high-level lifters, in fact, 80% of individuals have had have had or will experience debilitating back pain, not just back pain, but debilitating back pain at some point in their lives. And for lifters, spinal injuries are quite frequent, especially power lifters. I can name off the top of my head a dozen who had, who've had really bad injuries. And there are many success stories of people who have you know, risen out and still competed at a high level. Also some stories of people who have done that. And then in the long term, still you see it, there's a re-injury and it's even worse. And bad cases like, or semi-success um, stories like Ronnie Coleman, like success sure. in terms of he kept going, but well, where do you end up at the end is probably not where most people want to. So I think there's there's not much of a take-home message uh, in my case. In terms of general injury advice, there are a lot of things that I think are very useful. High reps, control tempo, not being focused on fixated on having to do certain movements in particular the power lifts the power lifts have sort of magic status for a lot of people that aren't power lifters and that is not entirely unjustified in the sense that especially the bench press and the squat are very good exercises the squat mostly i would say but it's definitely unjustified in the sense of it being an absolute necessity to perform these movements it it, it isn't for bodybuilding purposes for recreational purposes for overall strength functional training Unless you're a powerlifter, you can do perfectly well without a powerlifting program. And many people have these kind of fixations on certain exercises, and it tends to become worse when they become injured. So when they, you know, they do biceps curls, 
and they feel like, eh, I'm kind of getting bored with the biceps curls. I've seen this in many clients. Then they get injured. They get tennis elbow, for example, which is a result of um, overuse or just freak accident or something with uh, elbow flexion, at least usually. So maybe even the biceps curls are the main culprit. And then when they cannot do it anymore, they feel extra restricted when they can. So they feel like I have to do biceps curls. Whereas just two weeks ago, it was yeah. ah, kind of bored with this exercise. I feel like I can switch it out. Two weeks later, I have to do the biceps curls. Yeah, you, like, and actually that's a really good reminder for people about like the exercises and there aren't particularly like uh, magical ones out there. And that's actually a question that came up was kind of... Uh, I think exercise selection, I think we spoke about this last time, seems to have taken like a surge, particularly like the biomechanics, functional anatomy kind of scene. Mm -hmm. But someone asked kind of, in your opinion, right now, as it stands like across social media and what you're seeing, what are some exercises you're seeing that are overrated for hypertrophy and others that are underrated? So you mentioned like the barbell movements, OHP, like barbell um, overhead press always comes in there. So I'd be mm -hmm. interested to hear that. I think barbell overhead press is a great movement. I have erred much more towards dumbbells, in part for injury risk management, but also there is actually research showing for the dumbbell overhead press, at least, that dumbbells result in higher shoulder muscle activity in the delts than a barbell, and especially the lateral delts. And it makes sense because with a dumbbell, you can move the arms out further, really laterally to the sides. Whereas with a barbell, you're always restricted in having the elbows somewhat in front of the body. Now, I typically coach the lift to be as much lateral as possible to really focus on the side delts because nobody has trouble developing their front delts. And it's the side delts most people have the most issues with. And of course, the rear ones, but you don't do that with overhead pressing. So I'm a big fan of dumbbells. Um, loading is an issue. Getting the weight up for some, at some point for some people becomes an issue. Usually that's, that's bad technique of getting the weights up, but it becomes an issue when you're lifting like half of your body weight. And with you also get more raised motion especially in the laterally speaking. So you can, you can just get the elbows way out to the sides and you can get them way down. And with a barbell, that's not always possible. And then you have the added mobility for the elbows, wrists, keep people's joints happy. It is worse for the triceps, but over pressing in general isn't great for the triceps. Research is now quite conclusive that in particular, the long head of the triceps, because it's a bi-articulate muscle, remains understimulated from pressing movements. And since it's, it's, well, the lateral head might be more prominent, but the long head is, it's a very big part of the, the triceps and the, the meat of the, the back of the arm. So I think you, you want isolation exercises for that in general. So I'm, I'm a fan of both barbell and overhead barbell pressing, barbell bench pressing and barbell overhead pressing, but I prefer dumbbells and I like 15 degree incline double bench press a lot. And properly cued, uh, using the range of motion. That's very important. Most people don't do that. And like I said, the power lifts are probably mostly the most overrated. Not because they're bad, although the deadlift, I would argue, is actually quite bad in terms of pure muscle hypertrophy perspective. It's isometric. The range of motion is arbitrarily determined by the radius of the 45-pound plates. It's just overall... If you look at things that actually stimulate mechanical tension in the muscle fibers, it doesn't rank that well. Squats are much better. Bench press is, is good, but they are still overvalued because they are treated as magical. So it's not that they're bad or anything, but they are overrated. There's overrated exercise. I don't know. They come and go in my experience. Uh, it's good to see that lap prayers have uh, increased in popularity a lot since I wrote my uh, article on it. I like that. I see it in many, multiple countries. I think I, I've at least uh, obviously keep a close eye on like the team full ROM guys, Charlie and Mike and Jared, and they all mm -hmm. are doing it. So they, I see kind of the people I follow, uh, I'm quite close connected to that circle. So I see a lot of people doing those, but yeah, they, they were, you know, like you came up with those a, a long, long time ago. I remember doing them age, like years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And actually another one, I literally posted about it just recently. I remember actually I saw, uh, again, I think I got it from Mike who kind of repopularized it for me. But originally it was you with the butterfly dumbbell laterizers because what Mike, I think, calls it kind of like, uh, he might, they might be slightly different in terms of how you go about prescribing them. Yeah, and I got particularly it from Chinese weightlifters, but I gave it a name. <laughs> yeah, the butterfly lateral raise. So is that still one that you like to employ mm -hmm. and use? Yeah, because I, yeah. I get a lot from that movement. Like during the set, I'm like, 
it's like i'm not sure and then afterwards i'm just like my shoulder like my delts just completely blow up like nothing else so mm-hmm. i love that movement a lot and actually that's a, something i was going to ask about the overhead press because that's what people essentially and this is an argument i've used so this is a bias i have where i suck at overhead pressing i have i always have i also have a shoulder injury that made it worse and mm-hmm. so i barely ever program it for myself unless I pre-fatigue the side delts and maybe some triceps too to get into it. And kind of the argument, you probably heard the argument, you get lots of anterior delts through all your pressing. So kind of overhead pressing does kind of really hit that. And so the side delts, are they better hit via just doing more lateral raises and the overhead press can be quite fatiguing. So is that an argument you have time for or do you have another kind of argument against it? No, I agree. I think it's a good argument, but it doesn't mean overhead pressing is bad. And sure. I think in big part, it's due to the coaching style. Many people do overhead pressing when they, first of all, they don't have an Olympic lockout. So they, if you look at them from the side, when they lock out the barbell, it's almost like they're doing uh, a major incline press rather than a full Olympic lockout where the barbell is actually almost behind uh, your head. That helps a lot. And then in the bottom position, many people take too close a grip, I think, which makes them have to come down with the elbows close to the sides, whereas you want to come down with the elbows way out. And some people, I even have them start with a snatch grip, and then you'll feel the side delts, they definitely get work. It's hard on the shoulders. So for you, for example, I'd be hesitant to do high reps first, really is into it, but you'll feel the stretch. If you do a snatch grip, barbell overhead press, really focused on moving the elbows out to the sides rather than forward, you'll feel that stretch and probably the next day you might even get them sore, which in my experience is very difficult to get the delt sore. Yeah. So it's, it's in a large part coaching style, but overhead presses again are not an exercise you have to do. And there are many people who are overhead intolerant in part due to the shape of their acromion, past injuries, shoulder injuries are so common. So I have quite some clients as well that don't do overhead pressing and with lateral raises, even just lateral raises, you can do quite well. Butterfly lateral raises, if you think about it, are sort of a full range of motion overhead press without involving the triceps. Yeah. So they compl- they basically make overhead pressing redundant. So I, I fully agree with the argument. Their arguments in that overhead pressing is not necessary. It can be effective. There are exercises, however, that are probably more effective purely for the side delts, in particular with dumbbells and lateral raises. Um, but they do have a place in a properly designed program. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. No, I think that's what really well, and it's a good reminder to something I get frustrated with is, I don't know, you'll have the Instagram like a red cross and then a, a like green tick and it's like mm-hmm. well the one on this side isn't like terrible i don't know it could be an overhead press there for example like side delts no do lateral raises tick it's like people then look at that and they're like oh this is means this is bad this is good and like you said it all depends on context and so i'm actually going to have to try because i think uh, i'd been often kind of coming in and uh kind of tucking the rest a little bit and that's going to automatically be more interior delt so i might try doing like quite a wide one and just see how it feels mm-hmm. for me because that's something i have and like i can't remember if i've ever had my side delt sore so to be able to get them sore would mm-hmm. be something special uh you mentioned deadlift and i just want to bring it up just so people i imagine people might ask you're specifically talking about conventional deadlifts off the floor i think yes yes for example so, romanian deadlifts yeah. i love sure what about like uh do you differ between a straight leg deadlift to rdl or do you kind of call them the same thing or yes i think it's actually important to differentiate between the two i think a stiff leg deadlift should be referred to a deadlift that's actually performed with stiff legs so straight legs or straight leg deadlift if you bend the knees then it's a romanian deadlift and by that definition i think so the, the arguments that there's no such thing as a good and a bad exercise which is Fully true. It can be exaggerated, though, to the extent that some exercises are, in fact, for maybe not 100%, but 99% of purposes, better. And in this case, I would say that the Romanian version is at least the safer and probably also the more effective version of the stiff-legged deadlift. So a true stiff-legged deadlift, you get a great stretch in the hamstrings. And most people think that because of that, because they feel it so well, that it must be great to build the hamstrings. But 
you can do a stiff leg deadlift without any weight, and it would be deemed a hamstring stretch. You'll get a very good stretch as well, but it's, it's just a stretch. It's because the hamstrings, in fact, are going into passive insufficiency. They're stretched so long, their muscle length is so long, that actin and myosin can no longer form effective cross bridges. That's what passive insufficiency means. And the result of passive insufficiency is that there's essentially no active mechanical tension from the muscle fibers. So it's mostly glutes and passive tension. Now, passive tension can also contribute to muscle hypertrophy. But I think it won't counteract for the massive decrease in, in active muscle tension that you can generate with Romanian deadlifts. And that's also the reason you can lift so much more with a Romanian deadlift. So in that context, I, ask, I would ask people, like, what, what justifies the like, threefold increase in loading potential that you could otherwise have? It's not just leverages. Like the leverages are more favorable with Romanian deadlift, but if you do the math, you can see it's it's not just leverages that make the difference. I think you can make an argument for like keeping the legs a little stiff, and then hopefully get into to be a bit more of a compromise between the two. Maybe erring on the side of passive tension and still getting decent active tension. But a pure stiff legged deadlift, I think, is very risky. It's also very difficult not to tilt the pelvis then because the hamstrings are, the hips are basically restricted and out of range of motion. So any further range of motion very quickly comes from the spine and the pelvis, which can be a risk factor. So with, with that in mind, I'd say it's a, very, a relatively high risk, low reward exercise compared to either an intermediate version. I think, for example, Jeff Nimbert coaches the intermediate version. I like a pure Romanian deadlift focusing on basically moving as much weight as possible through um, a full range of motion without trying to actively lock out the knees or anything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I think uh, that was well described because when I think, yeah, when you hear straight leg deadlift and stiff leg deadlift, I know in the past when I had attempted to do them many years ago, like I just round my lower back. Like I look back at some video right. footage, I'm like, my legs are nice and straight, but my like it just looks awful. Like, and I kind of felt good doing them. Whereas now... When I, I think probably what I'm doing and what I prescribe to clients, you could call like the intermediate version or like a stiffer legged RDL <laughs> because you're right. right. Like even if I don't even know if I could try, like it would just feel so wrong trying to load anything and have straight legs like or, or basically completely straight legs. I'm not sure I could do it without, like, I just would get no range of motion. It would feel terrible. Uh, so no, I think that's a, a good qualifier as well for the conventional deadlift. What about um, like a sumo deadlift or uh, do you think from maybe a deficit or I guess some people do like a snatch grip deadlift, any of those? For muscle hypertrophy, they all suffer from similar problems. The fact that you're loading the bar in the bottom position, that you're dropping it on the floor itself is a problem because you have no more muscle tension at that point. And most people... Even when they try, they will drop the weight. So they're losing out on quite a bit of the eccentric contraction. And you have to start producing movement from nowhere, which can also be injurious if your technique's not ideal, which in many cases you see that when it gets more difficult, they start to round their back when getting the weight off the floor. In fact, for many people, I think the sticking point in the deadlift is right on the floor, which explains why research has a lot of difficulty finding the sticking region or the sticking point of the deadlifts is because there is none. Well, there is one, but it's it's before the movement even starts. Right. It's on the floor. <laughs> and you see that in a lot of people. I think researchers have, I don't know, they, maybe it's lack of listening experience, but a lot of researchers are like, we can't, we can't find it. Like there's a lot of controversy. But if you look at people just in practice, there are a lot of people, they can get the weight off the floor and then they'll lock it out or it just, just goes nowhere. And I'm one of them. So the sticking point, it does exist, but it's right on the floor. And sumo, I mean, sumo, um, yeah, you, you change the stimulation a bit. You become a little more glute focused, evolve the adductors. Adductors are not really relevant for aesthetic purposes generally, maybe for contest prep. But even then, they're just so hard to even visually discern. It's, it's questionable. Snatch grip deadlift I like because... It's kind of a compromise. It's basically either a snatch grip or deficit deadlifts. You just take a normal deadlift, but at least you solve the problem of the range of motion being arbitrarily determined by the radius of the standard plate. And then you, you increase the range of motion. So in the off season for powerlifters, for example, they do that. Or for some people that for some reason 
one reason or another, they, they need to, to deadlift heavy or they want, they care a lot about yeah. their deadlift, which is still a lot of people because yeah. it's a popular exercise. And then I tell them, okay, so these are the problems with the deadlift. You want strength and hypertrophy. So how about we do snatch grip deadlifts or deficit deadlifts? I think deficit is a little safer, but more impractical. So in practice, many people snatch grip is easier. It achieves the same thing, more range of motion. You have to get deeper. And you have a, a decent blend, at least. And then you really want to coach people on perfect form and controlling the weight also on the way down, at least until the point where they can keep their spine in a neutral arc. Yep. No, that's very well described. And the only other question I have for you, you mentioned the adductors. Um, that's something that I think has become a little bit more, I don't know, fashionable to isolate them and like train the, mm -hmm. I don't know, I can't remember if it's meant to be good girl, or bad girl, and both of those names, I think a lot of people have problems with anyway nowadays. So mm -hmm. I don't blame them for that. Uh, but is there any muscle groups, including the adductors and things, any that you think aren't isolated enough? or that you do isolate or some that you think there's like, I don't know, the traps, for example, maybe you shouldn't isolate those or that it's just not warranted. Quite a few. I would say there are a lot of muscle groups that are generally just neglected. And I would say that overall, the wisdom of the crowds is in some effect here because those muscles have either some issues or most people don't want to develop them. For example, upper traps, I think most people don't develop them properly. If they even give them the proper attention in terms of volume allocation, then they do standard kind of shrugs with a barbell or dumbbell, whereas you probably need to use a wide grip to truly involve the upper traps because the, the fibers of the upper traps, they don't, they don't run vertical. They run quite horizontal. And depending on your trap anatomy, if you're like this, for example, the fibers, especially the lower fibers, they, they go almost fully horizontal. And then some of the fibers are almost vertical. But those horizontal fibers will be almost completely inactive quite possibly completely inactive when you do a, a standard shrug with your arms at your sides. So you need to use a wide grip to abduct the shoulders, and then those fibers can contribute. However, do you want bigger upper traps? In my experience, if you're female, you probably don't. If you're male, it's still questionable. It depends a lot on your structure, because if you already have a relatively narrow shoulder structure, and then you get big upper traps, then it, it's kind of detracts from the V taper. Plus some people just don't like the look in the first place, but it is something to take into account to evaluate someone's structure and see what kind of traps do you have? What kind of physique do you want? And based on that, do we want to fully develop the traps? And also in some hard gainers, for example, I, I tell them, look, we will take muscle growth anywhere we can. So sure. we're also going to train the abs. <laughs> we're also going to train the traps. There is no risk of anything becoming too big. Forearms, we'll take it. So uh, then you can just do everything. And that brings us to the next ones, like forearms, abs. Forearms is basically, it's a lot of work for very little reward. And the injury risk is also non-trivial. I think that's in large part caused by people not keeping muscle tension and just letting the weight sort of slack in their connective tissues. But even then... For a lot of people, full range of motion wrist movements are not super comfortable. And you can train all the forearms you want. If you're already doing biceps curls, pulling movement, deadlifts, the additional gain is there. There's actually research showing it's there. Like if from a full range, full volume program, like a traditional kind of program you would see in, in many programs online, if you add forearm work, the forearms will grow more. You, you will be able to see it in, for example, an MRI scanner. Visually, however, you might be able to see it, but other people will see very little difference. I think the biggest bang for your buck exercises here are the traditional wrist curls and wrist extensions, with curls being the best. In particular, because they also have the benefit of helping you keep the bar straight during uh, barbell pressing. And often when you see the elbow slack back during barbell pressing, it's a risk factor both for wrist and for elbow injuries, because the arm goes a little bit like this. Suddenly there's torque on the elbow joint. If you're a strong presser, that's a lot of torque on a relatively weak joint that's much more stable if it can remain uh, directly under the bar with a straight wrist. So there's a little bit of extra um, functionality to, to the wrist curls. But still, even those, we have to do quite some volume to make not so much difference. Then adductors, 
I'm not sure if you want me to list all of them, by the way. I was the only thing I was. I will be interested here. The rest, actually, but um, on forearms, you perfectly described my experience. Like I injured my left wrist, and I have like big, thick wrists that just don't generally get injured. I kind of I pushed through it. I shouldn't have done that, and but my left wrist has not felt the same for like a couple of months now since having just like pushed through a little mm-hmm. bit. And like you said, like it's a complete and utter like <laughs> it's essentially a ball ache to have to do the amount of yep. work you have to do, and yeah, so very much describe my experience with forearms but i'd be interested in the uh, adductors as well yeah adductors are even they're not so much risky although people do get crazy sore often from them so there's there's some risk in that regard i actually did just uh coincidentally i did a set of adductor work like a week ago just because i was so bored and i felt like i needed to do something and i'm not training my adductors at all so i thought okay maybe it's good to at least do a set so that they don't pitifully atrophy into you know old man category and i thought i know i'm gonna get super sore if i do even just one set so i'm gonna do a half-assed set <laughs> yeah and i was still crazy sore for a week literally it was basically warm-up level and i probably could have pushed the range of motion even a little bit more and i was still sore for a week <laughs> so yeah many people have this issue i've, I've heard it from a lot of my female clients as well, where they feel they, they have to do the exercise and they say, oh, look, every time I do this, I can barely train and barely squat for the next days. And yeah, then it's actually counterproductive. Even that aside, you also have to factor in the best case scenario, if you see anything, is that you sort of close the thigh gap, which may or may not be possible. For me, I, I don't want it because I already have the issue that my legs are big enough that they uh, rub against each other. Yeah. Pants and everything, all my pants break down there. Uh, it's, it's a hassle when buying any type of pants. So yeah, I definitely don't want my adductors to get even bigger so it rubs against each other even more. Um, even though on stage, I would think maybe, you know, if you're so lean that you can see the muscle striations, I think it can make a difference. And then with the right kind of posing, essentially, essentially you have uber quads because you're, it will seem like your quads sort of keep going to the sides as well. But even if you have really crappy adductors, as long as you're lean enough and you do the posing right, you just don't show the insides fully, then it, it will barely be visible to the judges. Sure. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I think the the return on investment of adductor work is very, very, very poor. And then you have erector spinae, actually, the lower back. I think those might be neglected. But I would still generally not have people do more work than they are doing. If you're doing squats and deadlifts, going back to back injuries and how relatively frequent they are and how debilitating they can be, look at how many lifters they've they've taken out, sometimes permanently, more than any other type of injury, because the back heals very poorly. It does heal, but very poorly. And it's hard to give it any relief because you, you walk, you stand. So for some people, it's sitting that hurts. So it's hard to give it relief and the erector spinae again aren't a huge muscle group so you can train them quite effectively with isometrics for squats and deadlifts but if you really want them to maximal growth and there is also a study showing this then you want active back extension work in there and i found the best ways to incorporate this probably are nearly full range of motion actual back extensions but probably sticking to body weight and low weights like sets of 20 30 reps to keep the injury risk minimal. And you can do that on a 45 degree hip extension bench, for example. And you'll, you'll, you'll feel the difference. It, it definitely develops the erector spina more than just squatting and deadlifting. The back extension machines, I think, are very hurt or miss. I've seen a lot of people describe them as painful or because it's very unnatural to have the pelvis stuck in a chair like that. And interestingly, research actually finds that back extensions track strength in a machine is not just poorly correlated with deadlift and squat strength, but uncorrelated. I think there are three studies now that show it's uncorrelated. That's like for, for people that don't realize what, what, what that means, it's, it, it's crazy. It's almost unimaginable. I don't think anybody that hadn't seen this research would have imagined uncorrelated. No. Uncorrelated, like both are a measure of back extension strength. They have to be correlated, right? And they're not significantly correlated. It's crazy. And it probably is because of the fixed hip position that just makes it a very different 
very unnatural movement pattern. So also strength-wise, they're essentially useless. And purely for size, they're still quite awkward. And in, in my experience, many people get pain from them. They're quite injurious. And it's also awkward to get full length motion. So I, I much prefer on a hip extension bench or Arnold style rows where you do like seated cable rows and you let yourself get dragged sure. all the way forward and then all the way back. I think that also is a pretty good compromise for uh, arguably even the best total back builder if you needed, you know, the, the, the silly kind of, if you could only do one exercise. Sure, yeah. Then, well, theoretically, that would for the back actually probably be one of the best ones because you develop director spinae, the traps, the lats, everything. Yeah. And, uh, this is actually interesting because on quite a lot of, I used to be on like chest supported uh, machine rows, very sticular. Like I used to just mm -hmm. think, okay, so your chest should stay on the pad and like you should always just do this. Whereas now I kind of got, and I kind of got this from Mike as well, kind of letting the whole back stretch over it and then like almost arching off mm -hmm. it and you keeping the stomach kind of on the pad for that support to hit the kind of erectors in that sense I do that's kind of yeah so i find that that's work really really nicely for it as well so uh, again i think you talk through this as well with some of like yeah your experience in the field with your clients and what you see but also you're sure to describe like some people are like individual you might get this one guy that just i don't know they really need this area to be built up or what have you i'm very much similar to you with my adductors like <laughs> i don't need them bigger i need my mm -hmm. kind of the outside the, the the quad suite bigger i don't know if you have any thoughts on like being able to grow specific areas of the quad or um, and that sort of thing. I don't know if that's anything you've struggled with personally as well. My main thought is it's impossible yeah. in terms of at least isolating the VMO or even preferentially activating it. Any differences that have been found are minimal or with crazy impractical exercises. I think there's one study that's quite robustly found. You can emphasize the VMO. If you do wall squats with a BOSU ball in between your legs and you're <laughs> squeezing the ball together with your legs well great <laughs> very very effective practical exercise <laughs> so I, I don't think it matters the only thing with the quads is that what what is neglected is the rectus femoris the middle head you won't train it with squats or barely because it's a, a bioarticulate muscle it, it's also involved in flexing the hips or raising the knee and in a squat that's the opposite of the movement you want. You want hip extension. So the rectus femoris cannot contribute at the knee without sabotaging the hip, and therefore the body doesn't recruit it, essentially. Leg extensions, however, do train the rectus femoris. And in research, we see that the rectus femoris grows more from leg extensions than from squats. In a sense, leg extensions are thus a better, more complete exercise, ironically, than squats. Even though squats are the more compound exercise, for the quads specifically, leg extensions are actually the more compound exercise. And I think if I would ascribe leg extensions as something that's definitely improved my quads. I used to be like way, 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 way ago. My original roots in fitness were probably mostly like functional training. Okay. So I was kind of like, if I had a bias, it would be functional training. It's more like bias towards compound exercises. In my first article, you can see it. I was kind of biased towards compound exercises, uh, even though I couldn't really justify it. Um, you, you see that often, by the way, if you have someone and they always cite their work with scientific references and they make some claim and they, they can't cite that, then you have to think, uh -huh, is, <laughs> is, is that the bias or is that because they really have a good argument and it's just that the research isn't there yet? Both are possible, but always be extra skeptical for uh, uncited claims. Um, yeah, so you want some kind of leg extension movement or CC squat maybe or... Uh, reverse Nordic cam curls if you're a masochist and you're of iron oh, yeah. <laughs> Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. I think Brad said he's going to do some research on sissy, like body weight sissy squats. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, That's so... Nice. It'll be interesting to see if they're because the stretch you get on those is unbelievable, especially compared to a leg extension. Mm -hmm. that they load the length of the muscle very differently, actually. So I imagine they're probably well. If you're a masochist, 
leg extensions into a sissy squat is like horrendous but very mm-hmm. productive as well so uh, that's something i've enjoyed uh have you ever used the sissy squat machine where it kind of keeps your shins vertical and you then like sit back into it you mean the uh just the, the pad on the floor yeah essentially it's like got a like you put your shins against a pad and mm-hmm. then you've got a pad yeah, yeah, behind like you and one. you kind of yeah I, I've, I found those to be really cool as well but it's, i haven't seen i don't know if they've been researched i don't think so they're tough no. on the knees but they're yeah, great they for the quads that's why i found when we we're in lockdown i bought one because it's like i was mm-hmm. buying anything i could fit in the flat at the time and train my quads that weren't more barbell back squats um, but i did find my knees took a beating after a while on yep. those because and you like you can get a really nice stretch and like sit really deep into them but it does yeah it does really pull at the knees so anyway i should get to some of the <laughs> additional <laughs> questions i kind of went on a complete side tangent there by it mm-hmm. i really enjoyed that um someone actually asked i don't know, i thought you might have an interesting answer to this do you listen to music during your training do you have any recommendations surrounding that cyclically i currently don't i even currently train in a gym that doesn't have music which is very odd and it's fine i have these phases where i just get very zen good focus without any sort of distraction and then there are phases when i feel i need the extra kind of motivation and then i use the music but i'm very very critical of music like many artists i like maybe one or two (laughs) of their songs so there's not that much music i like that's which great. means I go through a relatively finite list of music re- pretty fast if I always listen to it. So I sort of save it for the periods when I'm either, if it's a super noisy gym or if it's I'm just not as motivated as normal or I feel like I can really go all out. For example, now I wouldn't listen to music because I feel that music also makes you slightly more reckless. It, it helps you push, but it also makes you push when you shouldn't. So if I, I feel, for example, that now if I listen to especially metal or something, I would be more likely to make a movement that I shouldn't make. Whereas now I'm actually, I do all of my workouts with, like every exercise I do is like a core workout because I'm like focused on keeping the entire core stable. And I feel like you kind of let go of that a little bit in favor of just pushing when you have music. And research generally finds it just a motivational effect. And of course, it's not like there's physical... Uh, I mean, now with uh, binaural beats and everything, some people think there's physical effect, but overall, uh, it's mostly just psychological. And yeah, I think you should use them as you you personally like. Research findings on this are quite obvious and intuitive, like self-selected music works better than other music. However, it is interesting to note that if you have bad music on, non-selected bad music, like some gyms or PTs sometimes put in the, put on in the gym in the morning when they're not awake yet, and but you have to train in the morning, and they put on this lounge music, it can actually decrease your performance, even in motivated individuals. There's just a, a limit to how much you can push the body when there's very relaxing music playing. <laughs> so then that would also be a scenario, and I actually had that when I was a business consultant at a gym. I, I really needed the music because the gym music was just too horrible. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense uh, and it's actually funny that you yeah you have such taste in music that it's not like you i'm the opposite i like have i probably I have no taste in music i just put anything in that has like that's nice rock I, me I wish I had that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah something i do find though uh, i've had this i think it's certain movements i have it for but something i've gone through recently with hack squats is that if i put on too heavy of just a tune because ha- i'm getting to a level of just like every time I come to do hack squats, I get like anxiety around, am I going to mm-hmm. be able to get this lift? If I just do this, like you said, kind of put this song on and just go for it, I know like my core is going to go loose, something's going to go off, I'm going to fail the lift earlier than I should. Do you ever find that like element of riling yourself up for some lifts you kind of use a bit sparingly or have you ever experienced that? I definitely have that with caffeine. Yeah. And I, if I look at the, I'm quite caffeine sensitive. So if I look at the dosages of caffeine used, especially the standard six milligram per kilogram, which is for like many guys, six cups, like bigger guys, it's like six cups of coffee. <laughs> that would not be beneficial for my performance. <laughs> that is way into overstimulation territory. For my, I think the, the best lift that I did with Romanian deadlifts, which was 200 times 16, I did actually taper and use caffeine, but the maximum I could tolerate. It was, I think, three Red Bulls. And then I was really, you can even see it in the video. I'm, I'm like mildly shaking. 
So uh, yeah, I guess actually that's a great way to put it is like overstimulation. That's what I get. Like I am like, I need to control my almost nerves at that point mm-hmm. for that lift. Cause, and then you get into the, like, the psychology of it as well, which can make it worse. So I kind of found I had to get into like a rhythmic kind of song that I could just like yeah. go with the flow and focus on that versus. And I, I think for squats, it's most relevant yeah. because for that lift, if, especially for me, for many deadlifts, the technique is so ingrained. I could, you could wake me up at night and I could like hip hinge, hip hinge, hip hinge. And every rep would look exactly the same. But a squat is so technical. It takes so much practice before that gets perfectly ingrained. And you can just focus on pushing. I think almost nobody really gets there. Yeah, no, exactly. So yeah, that's really cool too. Uh, So someone asked, it's actually along the same sort of lines, any downsides if someone just trains using machines and no free weights? You somewhat answered it, but I think I'd be interested Definitely. in it. You will it's a down it's a downside for strength in non-machine movements, for one. Of course, that it doesn't transfer as well. There's there's great research on this. And it's mostly due to specificity of the movement. There's also a much greater risk of uh, what's called a pattern overuse injury, or yeah, I think it's pattern overuse injury. No, there is a different word for it, but it, that's what it means essentially. Where you're, like, if you're doing a double bench press or a bubble bench press, you're doing the same movement all the time, but every rep looks slightly different. In a machine, it still looks slightly different, but it's almost identical. And in particular, it's the, like, the handles are identical. The handles make an basically identical movement. And that's just like repetitive strain injury when you use a computer a lot, poses additional injury risk in the sense that. Most injuries are very, very specific. In most cases, if someone, if one of my clients says, I have a little bit of a nag or something there, you take out one movement or even you, you adjust the technique, problem solved. If you're early. With machines, you have much greater risk of developing these overuse kind of injuries. So I often find that machines can be seem more injury friendly in the short term. And if you have a shoulder injury, for example, machines are great because they provide the stability that your shoulder at the moment may not be able to provide but in the long run i find that they are more injurious so that's that's another downside and other than that i think well there's just a limitation of you need a very good set of machines to really just use machines but other than that i think it it is actually viable i think that's a really interesting perspective because i think myself included i think machines probably less injury but it's a yeah. Not many people talk about the fact that you could get this kind of repetition, uh, repetition. Like, especially I think if you're using that machine multiple times in that week, mm-hmm. so do you find then the solution would just be to rotate that more often? And would you preemptively do that, or would you do it when you see the signs coming on? You can you can do it reactively. I think if you're well, if you know your body well, then you can see the pain signals coming. In clients, I'm a bit more reluctant. So I generally just try to avoid these movements or I do them more short-term. For example, there are some movements I call primary movements and I use them as long-term benchmarks of strength. And then there are movements like the machine work. If I, for example, do a face with someone, instead of the barbell bench press, as soon as their machine chest press starts stalling, I'm like, okay, we, we switch it. Whereas with the barbell bench press, I would be like, okay, we'll start implementing daily undulating periodization, see if we can squeeze out more long-term progression. And we're going for these all-time PRs to really ascertain that we're getting peak increases in, in muscle mass. Whereas with a machine, I'm like, I don't care how much you're chest pressing on a machine. Um, although I would say that into, where we're talking about horizontal machine chest pressing, convergent machine chest presses are an awesome underrated movement because they provide something that you cannot get, even with a dumbbell, you cannot have the convergent mm-hmm. resistance. So if you have a machine where you're pushing not just uh, away, but you're also pushing the hands towards each other, most people instantly feel it. If you have one like that, that also allows good range of motion. It's great for the packs and it's pretty shoulder friendly. I'm thankful I've recently moved to a new gym and they have these nice converging machines and things that mm-hmm. I've been using, partly because my shoulder was kind of being annoying. And so it's just mm-hmm. the stability factor is really helpful. So that's interesting though, in terms of like when a movement stalls, you're not necessarily like you have a bit of a different way of going about that, a machine versus a free weight and how you, you might rotate things. Do you find, I would imagine more advanced clients get stalled, they stall a little bit sooner. And so maybe you Definitely. rotate exercises more often for them then. Yes. In, in the beginner, I have some clients where they're almost on the same program for maybe even a year. Sure. And it's just, 
they're just riding the newbie train, newbie train game, uh, newbie game train. <laughs> and yeah, it's just everything is going perfectly as planned. So don't fix what isn't broken. In advanced training, you, you can never do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think some people get, it's kind of similar to the stubbornness they have with like the squat, bench, deadlift, maybe, and where they're like, oh, I can't rotate mm. this. Or maybe they just have an exercise. Like it could be for me, the hack squat where just like I'm stalling yet. Yeah, I think it's the best movement for my quad. So I keep it in just for the sake of keeping it in, but rotating it could be exactly what I need to do to keep the progress going. Not saying that's happening to me just yet. I haven't stalled, but uh, it's nice to hear from you that that rotation might have to happen a little bit more uh, readily for advanced trainees. That kind of goes mm -hmm. along with what you'd expect, I guess, as well. That stimulus becomes a little bit more stale, faster for that person who Definitely. hasn't got as much adaptation to make. <laughs> the next question that's come in is on exertion headaches. Have you ever experienced one and do you have any advice surrounding them? I have, I never have headaches unless I consume stimulants. Um, I've become even more sensitive to them and now I get headaches, which is annoying. But other than that, uh, no, and I don't have that much experience either. For most people, it, it just comes down to uh, being lean, good diet, all these things, they, they, tend to, they tend to help and listening to, to your body a bit, but I haven't really found any magic hacks or anything for it. That's good. I have only experienced a true exertion headache once, which was like a knife being stabbed in the back of your skull, which was horrendous. So it, uh, it kind of came out, it was kind of like a freak thing where I, I have no reason to know why it happened. Uh, but I, my only advice to this person, because they said it's been happening going on for months, actually, I just say like, really back off. Like if you feel it coming on, don't push through it because you kind of go back to step one basically every time. Like mm -hmm. any injury, it's an injury to the brain, I guess. Yeah, you have to distinguish between sort of true exertion headache, whether it really is the exertion that triggers it, or what you often often see in all, all of these cases now, many people talk about burnout and depression, and actually it's stress. It's just stress, and it's often not gym-related stress in the first place. It's just that the symptoms manifest in the gym, but the real cause is the fact that you're sleeping five hours a night and you're, you're chronically overworked, and then you get these kind of issues. Stress really is bad for everything. What's the saying? Stress is stress is stress. Like you, like that's the. I always remember mm -hmm. that saying. Uh, one of the complete side tangent to everything we've been talking about, but someone has asked, "Do you still?" And I hadn't known actually that you'd done this. Um, recommending high protein refeeds over high carb refeeds. I don't know if that is that something you'd advise. I occasionally do it in contest competitors, not not often, but it's mainly uh, a strategy for when someone feels like they they, they have to have a real refeed day and they 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 probably also aren't going to control themselves in any way then if you do a protein refeed day there really is almost no risk but you have to be very strict and it's not a strategy i think is psychologically very healthy or sustainable or even very enjoyable but if you <laughs> just eat protein for a day you can literally eat as much as you want and you pretty much cannot do any damage like the conversion to glycogen and subsequent fat and everything is, is very, very poor. So you can overeat significantly more than if you were to do a carb refeed without any risk. I guess. And a, Sorry. The, and the lack of palatability is actually also somewhat of a bonus because you're also not going to um, eat as much. I'm thinking you probably have somewhat strict guidelines surrounding like you can't just go and have like a fatty steak and like a no, burger yeah. and I don't know, protein bars. It's like... Because no, when you chicken breast, <laughs> yeah, when you talk to me, you think like lean, like protein powder can be tasty, but like you just get over sweet. And once you've had like a a bit of, <laughs> I don't know how much you could eat of that. So mm -hmm. yeah, I so, yeah, even at a contest prep, like I would get quickly sick of that. So that like, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense for the person who you're not necessarily wanting to do like a refeed. Like it's a psychological mm -hmm. one in that matter, and you don't want to take time away from potentially dieting and fat loss makes a ton of sense especially because yeah. like the data is revealing it's mostly a psychological release at least at the moment mm -hmm. i just had bill campbell on about diet breaks as well and again we're kind of like in this oh were they doing much here i don't know so uh, it's really interesting uh so the next question was thoughts on massing and mini cutting versus massing and then maintaining a top body fat like you mass up and then just uh they said actually main gaining so like trying to maintain and still make gains mm -hmm. mini cuts i'm a big fan of i think mini cuts are very underrated many people are stuck in this idea that they have to do long cuts long bulk whereas you can be quite flexible i think short bulk does not work 
because you just cannot track progress well. And there is probably also a little bit of a wind-up time before A, you found the sweet spot energy surplus, and B, before leptin and all these hormones have normalized and you're in a fully anabolic environment. We're talking at least you know a couple of days. So I think for a bulk, probably below a month, there's very little point. You could better, if you can cut, then cutting is more productive. So mini cuts I'm a big fan of. Main gaining or just maintaining in general, I think is generally a waste of time. So you can, you're almost always better off either lean bulking, and even if you try to lean bulk, but you're so conservative that you end up maintaining, I think it's still a better ideal than that you're just maintaining. I've also found that some people like the idea of, okay, now I'm just going to sort of take a step back, maintain. But I found that for other people, it can definitely backfire in the sense that they feel like, okay, uh, we don't know what to do, so I'm not achieving anything. Yeah. And like physiologically speaking, there's there's not in an advanced training in particular, there's nothing really that will improve other than maybe psychological reset or something. So I think at least theoretically, you'll almost always be better off in like slight energy surplus or just cut. How does your, when you go for a mini cut, is there anything you do differently to in that versus another cut apart from just a, maybe a, a more aggressive rate of loss? Yeah, that's the only main difference. It can be a bit okay. more aggressive. Maybe you don't cut the training volume. If it's only one week, you can maybe you can just suffer it because otherwise in cutting, I would, I would cut the training volume compared to a bulk. And especially the, the two-day kind of, like two, two crash diet days, I sometimes do that. Someone, which is, you don't lose a lot of fat, but for some people, it, it really helps to at least just get the bloat off and everything. And you will lose a little bit of fat. And then they feel like they, they sort of see themselves as if they were cutting. And then they're like, okay, I'm actually, I'm not really fat. I'm mostly bloated. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So that helps. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm generally, I'm a big fan of uh, all those kind of mini cut things. What's the, you mentioned, well, you mentioned two days. What's the general, like, do you have a general, like, number of weeks that you run it for, like a maximum and minimum that they tend to go? I like one week and two week. I find that those are very, very psychologically um, palatable for people. When people, if you tell them, you know, one week mini cut, everyone's like, great. In fact, during a bulk at some point, people may feel like, nice, a week without force yeah. feeding. But after that one week, you'll be back to, okay, I'm hungry. I, I want to eat. And two weeks is also still very, you can just tell them, you know, you push it for one more week. And probably the thing actually I like most about mini cuts is that if they psychologically settle for one or two weeks, I very often see that once they're in the, in the flow and it's going well, and they, they start off with a relatively aggressive rate of loss, so they get great results, then they end up saying, you know, I, I think we can just cut and I'll, I'd like to be six pack lean again. And it's a very low effort way because they don't feel like they're really cutting and it feels very optional. Whereas otherwise, it always, there is the idea of, okay, I, if I want to get lean, I need to continue cutting. And now it's like, it feels more, it's, it feels a lot more volitional when it's an extended mini cut. And I'm saying, okay, you know, we can extend it for another week if you want. We can keep bulking or we can go back to bulking. One more week, okay, one more week. And then sometimes you see, okay, it's, Two months now, we are shredded again. So we basically <laughs> did a whole cut. But they're like, yeah, I know. I, I didn't really feel like I did a cut. I just stopped when it became difficult. It's so fun. I think it was you who really brought it to my attention in terms of how when we diet, so much of it is psychological, like in mm -hmm. terms of hunger and everything that we feel there. So I know, I think Alberto is going through his contest prep at the moment. He's not tracking so I can't imagine, like, if you were able to pull that off, I can imagine that being, and I think actually even for your contest prep, you did something very similar, right? Until maybe towards I, the end. Yeah, I tried until like the last eight weeks. I couldn't, I couldn't get like the shredded glutes. They just wasn't working. I was eating yeah. like four kilo plus food a day and they, they, there was no more fat loss. So at that point, <laughs> I really needed to start tracking Dig. and basically just suffer hunger. Yeah, for sure. Menno, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a great time going through these questions. I know people really appreciate it. Have you got anything in the works? Uh, if people want to kind of follow along and see what you're doing, where should they head? Uh, just keeping up the, the good work on uh, social media and my PT courses, coaching. So nothing major planned. And uh, we are being my back, of course. Sure. So yeah, just uh, expect more steady. I'm probably going to do a bit more social media content.
fantastic well i'll make sure that's all linked below so people can follow along and they can see everything you're doing because yeah i I really enjoy your social media content as well so if there's more of that that's good more more learns Mm -hmm. and i hope that you're back heals as quickly as it can and yeah you keep being positive because yeah i know how much like Mm -hmm. this up uh and i know the audience are the same but wish him well in the comments at least and share this around so everyone can enjoy it and give sympathy towards menno but thank you so much guys for listening and we'll catch you very soon thank you So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.